Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on Soul of the Nation, we continue with our series on white Christian nationalism by welcoming, re-welcoming back, pollster Robert P. Jones to the program. Jones is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. You know those like rides that you would go on in the little county fair carnivals where they would have the pony tied up to the pole and, and it would just kind of go round and round in circles and it had like this worn, uh, you know, trail where it had just gone round and round. So you would get on and you were, you know, you were riding a horse, but it wasn't going anywhere. And you, and the horse, you know, uh, was just kind of wearing this tread in the ground. I feel like particularly white Christianity is a bit like that. You know, um, it's just going round and round and round and not going anywhere. Um, and deep down, you know, I think most of us know that and are just scared to death to admit it. A few weeks ago, PRRI released the results of its signature American Value Survey, which takes the pulse of Americans each fall on a range of issues at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. And this year, they covered attitudes about white Christian nationalism, systemic racism, abortion, gender, and gender identity, QAnon, and critical issues for voting, among others. So, Robbie Jones, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Jim. Glad to be back. Robbie, as you know from being a guest on The Soul of a Nation before, there's a question I'd like to ask at the outset, onset of each dialogue with my guests. And the question is, so how is your spirit, Robbie, these days? How is your spirit? Oh, it's always a good question. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I think on the one hand, you know, I see so many good things happening in the country and I, I see, you know, people standing up and standing up for justice, um, staying against injustice. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, the midterms elections, I think, are, are not too far in the rearview mirror. And, um, you know, it, it's troubling. Um, so on the one hand, for just one concrete example, on the one hand, you know, we did see um, some of the candidates that were uh, really the worst, um, you know, in forwarding this idea uh, that the country is, you know, a, a really a white Christian country. And we saw many of them go down and not get elected. Um, on the other hand, uh, so many of them were close, um, you know, um, uh, and in Georgia, you know, we saw the, with the runoff between um, Walker and Warnock, um, almost uh, just unconscionable to me that that election was as close as it was given the two candidates uh, standing, standing for election. And um, uh, so I, I think it's a little bit of a mix, a mixed bag. I think it's an indication though, that, that we as a country are really still sorting ourselves out um, and real still asking, you know, the, the, the question of like, are we really a pluralistic democracy um, or, or not? Or, or are we, uh, I really do think the choices are, you know, are we that, or are we really a white Christian country um, and really going to claim, claim that and, um, and use power uh, to kind of enforce that vision of the country? With the midterms, I was feeling like these are going to be close one way or the other, and they could be close in ways that turn out to, turned out to be disastrous or ways that turned out to be encouraging, but close, as you say, either way. And so it was a skirmish, <laughs> you might say, uh, but it wasn't the war, and the forces we're talking about today are doubling down 
for that war. I think that's I think that's exactly right, Jen. Like that that you know what we saw I think in the midterms was a variety of you know lab experiments. You know they're kind of testing uh, to see how far you know things could get pushed and in what way. Uh, and you know I, I think fortunately we dodged a bullet you know in in the midterms. But I, I think you're exactly right that that you know now what we're going to see is uh, kind of forces regrouping uh, and uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, how they can sort of achieve the same ends, um, but with ways that might be more palatable to people. Indeed. And your American Values Survey report covers a lot of ground, this ground, with more than 70 pages and dozens of charts. I want to start with two important findings. So the first is that Americans overall reject the idea that, quote, God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world. Overall rejected that, really two to one, which is good. However, white Christian nationalist beliefs are now affirmed by half of Republicans and half of white evangelicals, half of Republicans and half of white evangelicals. Uh, That's a third of the country. So tell us why that's so significant. Well, yeah, I'm glad you went there. That was a, certainly the the question that stood out the most to me. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism. What's the right term? What does it really mean? How big? Uh, how many people in the country, um, you know, really believe these sentiments, especially the core tenets uh, of it? And so uh, at, at PRI, we decided to really craft a question that would get at what I think is at the heart of it, and it is not just a religious claim, but an ethno-religious claim, right? That is, it's about being white and Christian with whiteness and uh, Christianity, you know, really being meld- melded together into um, a singular identity. Uh, and so we wrote the question, and it does, it does read, you know, God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Um, as you said, I mean, Americans overall two to one reject that uh, that premise, um, but it is 31% of Americans who agree uh, w- with with that sentiment. So that that's not uh, an insignificant minority uh, of the country. And then when we look underneath um, uh, the hood to kind of partisanship and uh, and to religious breakdowns, you do see this uh, this difference, and that that idea again that it really is you know essentially. Um, that God intended America to be, you know, a new promised land for white Christians. Um, it does capture half of Republicans today and half of white evangelical Protestants uh, today. The numbers for other uh, uh, Christian groups drop off, you know, pretty quickly. But but among that group that is the core of the Republican Party, um, we do have half of them uh, and, uh, adhering to that question. And in you know the the second question is is really. Okay, so that's that's half of one of our two major political parties. That's a big deal um, that is being motivated um, by white Christian nationalism. Uh, but what difference does it make? And and I there you know what so what in other words what goes along with that worldview? And so we did some additional analysis to you know ask that question. And so uh, just to give you three examples of things that go along with that worldview and why this matters so much. So if you look at white Americans who affirm that idea again that, that kind of America is a Tended by God to be a, 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 a kind of white Christian country. Uh, here are the things that kind of go along with it. Is one of them is a rejection of systemic racism, right? A kind of denial that the uh, history of slavery or discrimination really has any uh, relevance uh, for today. In fact, those white Americans who affirm Christian nationalism, seven in ten of them. Uh, disagree that the history of slavery and discrimination has made it hard for African-Americans to work their way out of the lower class. 
Uh, similarly, if you go to immigrants, um, uh, we, we've heard a lot on um, uh, Fox News and kind of far right news outlets about the so-called replacement theory, this kind of ugly uh, you know, theory that, that immigrants are uh, uh, replacing real Americans. Um, and so that, that view comes along for the ride. So again, among whites who affirm uh, this idea of the country being a white Christian uh, country, uh, 65% of them uh, agree that immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. Uh, and then finally, um, and perhaps the, the scariest one um, uh, to me, and the one that really, um, you know, that we saw on display on January 6th, is that among white Americans who affirm white Christian nationalist views, um, they are four times as likely uh, as other Americans to uh, support political violence. Uh, so uh, to, the question we, we had was that uh, they're four times likely to agree with this statement. Uh, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. Well, those three are the three things I want to talk to you about, uh, indeed. So that's a great intro to this whole conversation. Uh, on racism in particular, your survey confirmed that a denial of the existence of structural racism has become a defining feature of the Republican Party. Uh, they deny that white supremacy is still a major problem and do not believe there is racial inequity even in our criminal justice system. Um, uh, and that that's pretty clear. And, and the number of white Christians who go along with that is, is not just a political issue, but a religious problem. I, I think that's right. I mean, these things are very, very linked uh, uh, together. And, you know, the gap here, you know, between Democrats and Republicans, I should just say, I mean, even for somebody who stares at partisan divides, you know, all the time in public opinion surveys, I mean, they're just eye-popping. I mean, they, they are 50 to 60 percentage points difference between Republicans and Democrats. I'll just give you a few here. We had a whole range of these questions. Um, you know, I've already mentioned one, this idea of generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for black Americans to work their way out of the lower class. 72% uh, of, of, uh, of Democrats agree with that statement. Only 16% of Republicans uh, agree with that statement. Um, the idea that white supremacy is still a major problem in the U.S. today. 86% of Democrats agree with that. Only 30% of Republicans. Uh, the idea, uh, you mentioned criminal justice. Um, you know, the idea uh, that uh, a black person is more likely than a white person to receive the death penalty uh, for the same crime. 85% uh, of Democrats agree with that. Only 31% of Republicans uh, agree with that. And then finally, you know, the one that is, um, you know, I think also uh, just kind of mind-bending uh, is, is, the, the, this kind of um, belief in so-called reverse discrimination um, that, that, uh, that our question reads that today discrimination against white Americans has become as big a problem as discrimination against black Americans and other minor and other minorities. Now uh, you look at people who disagree with that statement, who reject this idea of so-called reverse discrimination, 84% of Democrats reject that. Uh, uh, only 33% of Republicans um, reject uh, that idea. So again, 50 to 60 percentage point difference between the parties um, and, you know, if we go to religion on this, um, and this was, you know, the uh, one of the things that I dug deeply into in my last book, White Too Long, uh, was how this impacted white people and white Christians in particular. And I built a scale out of, um, you know, questions like these and then scored that scale kind of one to 10, uh, where, you know, one is holding the least uh, racist attitudes, 10 is holding the most racist attitudes. And what I found is if you take your average white person and you add Christian identity, it moves them up the scale, right? And not down. So white evangelicals scored eight out of 10 um, on that scale, but white non-evangelical Protestants and mainline Protestants scored seven out of 10. 
and white Catholics scored seven out of 10 on that scale. So, you know, this is something that you're, you're right. It's a political problem. It's a cultural problem, but it's also very much a white Christian problem. As you say in your book, we've been white too long and white so long that anything less than repentance in the biblical notion of that being turning around, going in a whole different direction really won't uh, suffice. And as, you're, as you just said in your study points out, this isn't just white evangelicals, white Christians, white Catholics, white mainland Protestants. There may be some differences in percentage, but most white people. So it, it really means that white Christian, that term, uh, is defined by the first word in the term, white. The adjective destroys the meaning of the noun. Uh, we are white before we're Christian. And that's a deeply, it's a ver- I think it's a great threat. It's the greatest threat maybe to democracy that we have, but it's, it's even a greater threat to the integrity of the faith of our churches. Well, I think that that's right. And, and um, you know, the, the one thing that kind of, you know, someone trained in the social sciences, it, it was striking to me, uh, kind of when I was first learning, like, you know, how sociologists and political scientists who don't really have a theological stake, you know, in this, but but they, how they created the categories to measure American religion. Um, and basically, in order to make sense of it and the way that it actually operated on the ground, um, they created bo- kind of, you know, these kind of analytical boxes to kind of sort uh, people into religious groups by combining race and religious identity, because that was the only way to make sense of the way it was actually being lived out on the ground. Uh, so, for example, you know, as long as we've had modern social scientists, uh, we've always uh, distinguished between African American Protestants and white Protestants, um, not because they hold wildly different theological, uh, you know, differences, um, or even that they sing different hymns, uh, but because of the way the faith is actually lived out on the ground. Uh, and you know, I've said over and over, you and I've had this conversation, but I, I still. Uh, I mean, I wince every time I look at um, the exit polls and every time I look at questions like the ones we've been talking about on immigration or racial justice, that what you see um, is if you sort religious groups, you know, uh, kind of left to right, agree to disagree, whatever your your metric is on so many of these key issues, um, uh, whether it's partisanship or like I said, racial justice, immigration, what you tend to see is there are no two groups in America further apart than white evangelical Protestants and African-American Protestants. Um, and that's just striking uh, when you think about this. These are two groups that often share geographic space uh, in the South and peripheral South, share a lot of the same hymns, a lot of the same theology, um, and yet on the ground live such different lives that when really disinterested political scientists and sociologists study them, they have to create completely separate categories um, to even understand what's going on. This notion that you lift up, ethno-religious identity. That's core to all of this. And uh, for many, this is a political problem, threat to democracy, which it is. It's also, when you listen to African-American church leaders, this is clearly an existential threat that they feel to their lives and their kids and their future coming from fellow Christians, fellow white Christians. Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, it's it's a, you know, if you think about, I mean, the idea of kind of think theologically a bit here, you know, if you think about the idea of communion, right? Um, uh, And, uh, you know, unfortunately in the U.S., um, we have an impoverished understanding of that because most of the communions that take place in the country are in racially segregated space. Um, So they don't actually, even in the kind of concrete experience of it, um, give this idea of a church beyond walls, beyond race, right, Um, that connects people in the fellowship of, um, you know, relationship with God, 
that's not what we always get, but, but, you know, it, it, it is the sense that, um, the, um, well, I'll put it this way too. We, we, um, we did some focus groups, um, uh, among African-Americans, uh, and, and white Americans as well over Confederate monuments and flags. Uh, and you know, the indifference that we heard among kind of white Americans, we did this across, um, 13 Southern States, uh, 26 focus groups. Um, and the indifference that we heard among, um, white Americans was just remarkable about, you know, the presence of Confederate monuments in their cities and their communities, what it meant. Um, uh, and then to hear the sort of pain and betrayal and anger, um, uh, from that stems from that sense of betrayal, uh, and threat, uh, that, that African-Americans, uh, feel like, you know, one, in one instance, um, uh, you know, uh, a parent in Richmond, uh, Virginia, which has, you know, now, now all the monuments are actually down, um, as of like two weeks ago, the, the last final monument finally came down, but, um, uh, but, but growing up and having kids and, um, and avoiding Monument Avenue, no matter where they were driving in the city and Monument Avenue is, you know, miles long and a major thoroughfare in Richmond, but they would go out of their way, even if it meant driving another 15 or 20 minutes out of the way to not have to go down Monument Avenue. So their kids wouldn't even know that was there, um, because they knew it would deform their sense of personhood and dignity to understand that their city was so marked uh, by these overt expressions of white supremacy um, that were still standing 100 years after the, you know, 150 years after the Civil War. Well, the, what comes out of your your uh, study here is really the worldview, the worldview of election deniers. For example, you got some very interesting survey here, which, as as I hear you talk, the worldview that you're that you're documenting here is completely different than what back to the Great Commission that Jesus taught us to do. Uh, go into all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, that is so different, what he commanded us to do and say and be. So different than the worldview of election de- uh, the election de- deniers. For example, you say 70% who say they believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump believe that, quote, immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. 70% also deny that there is a lot of discrimination against black people in America. Uh, the, the, these days, you mentioned that 80% say the country has become too, quote, too soft or feminine. And it goes on and on. Uh, true patriots have to resort to violence to save the country. What does this worldview add up to? Uh, is there a white if there was a white Christian nationalist political party, and it sounds like there is now, would this be the platform? Uh, there's a worldview and a platform here for politics. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I should say, you know, when we look just at that that view of um, uh, just that that one measure that you know half of half of Republicans uh, and half of white evangelicals support this idea that America is a you know white Christian country uh, meant to be a, a, a white Christian country. That's one thing, but it's worth remembering too that, like demographically, the two parties are increasingly sorting themselves. Um, so today, even though the number of white Christians in the country is declining and is now only forty-four percent of the country, um, white Christians make up nearly seven in ten Republicans, right? So it's not a, and and they make up only about four in ten uh, Democrats. Um, so while the Democratic Party looks, um, you know, roughly like um, uh, like the country uh, does. Um, the Republican Party uh, looks like a throwback, right? Um, and, and in fact, if you kind of compare the Republican Party and you kind of overlay it, like what generation does it most look like? Um, the Democratic Party looks about like 30-year-old America. Uh, the Republican Party looks about like 70-year-old 
America in terms of its racial and religious um, uh, makeup. And so we do have a kind of throwback party. I think that's why, you know, all of the rhetoric, uh, reclaim, restore, uh, uh, you know, make America great again. It's all this backward looking, reclaiming something that's lost, nostalgia, appeal. Um, and I think that's the worldview, right? Is this idea that we had, you know, we, we basically successfully, I kind of put it this as starkly as I can. Um, so, uh, we uh, brought missionaries and uh, soldiers over from Europe. We successfully colonized uh, this continent. Uh, we exterminated and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and forcibly uh, removed Native Americans from areas where we wanted to live, uh, decimated that population. We imported Africans uh, uh, to uh, clear uh, fields and, and, and farm and to enrich uh, ourselves. And, and by the way, we all, we did all of that. Um, and this is the thing I, I think we just got to own, like we did all of that while thinking we were good Christian people. The people who did those things, their consciences by and large, uh, were not that bothered, right? Whole denominations, um, you know, um, kind of just floating along, right? This is what happens. The idea of manifest destiny with all of its violence and all of its bigotry and all of its racism widely accepted. Uh, you know, even today um, as a kind of, you know, providential uh, thing that we were just destined to, um, you know, occupy this continent from sea to sh shining sea. Uh, so I, I think we're, again, we just got to get our heads around this if we really want it, it. It's it's something that is so we've accepted for so long. Um, and so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that it finds, especially in a binary political system like we have with only two parties, um, you know, in, in Europe, what, what happens, right, is, is these, you know, there's a kind of white Christian nationalist party and it claims 20% of, uh, of the body, right? And it operates that way. Uh, in, in America, with only our two parties, what we've got is essentially a, a, a kind of takeover um, where this idea is increasingly becoming, uh, you know, the mark of what it means to be Republican. Well, I'm glad you said takeover because that's how it, how it feels. Uh, you know, uh, the Republican Party... Uh, I used to have friends on the Hill who were Republicans, and uh, but they have been taken over now. And the big picture that you outline here from your data has to do about whether we're going to do a move backward toward an idealized, mythical, hom homogeneous past or forward toward a more diverse future. And it's almost like the parties are lining up. And sadly, the Christians are lining up. Too many of the white Christians, the majority still, want to go back uh, to the, uh, maybe to, to put the monuments back up in Virginia, right? And 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 for black people of faith, Democratic Party, there's a desire to go forward. So it's a battle between which way we're going to move here. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, one of the question uh, we've asked for a while now, we started asking this question in 2016, but we've kept asking it because it was one of the most predictive questions of vote in 2016. And it was exactly this question of um, since the 1950s, uh, do you think American culture and way of life has mostly changed for the better or changed for the worse? Um, and the country is essentially divided right down the middle um, on that question. Um, and the two parties, again, huge differences. Uh, Republicans, two thirds think things have changed for the worse. Uh, Democrats, two, two thirds think things have changed for the better. White Christians, all the white Christian groups, not just white evangelicals, line up on the side of thinking things have changed for the worse uh, since the 1950s. You know, whereas um, we, you know, see much 
really all other Americans see it um, see it differently than that. So I, I think this is a, it is a sign of um, you know here's here's where I find it hopeful though maybe Jim is that the question is no longer opaque. Um, you know I think that we are at this moment of reckoning. You know that uh, we've seen over the last few years. I do think the pandemic disrupted things enough um, that we were able to see some things that have been going on for quite some time, right? Um, but we were able to see it a little differently. White Americans woke up a little bit to seeing um, uh, things like the death of George Floyd and uh, you know uh, police killing of African Amer- unarmed African Americans, differential patterns in uh, convictions and uh, other things along racial lines. And and I I think we are you know the monuments. Um, I mentioned Richmond, right? So I w- if I went, uh, you know, I, I did some research and was in Richmond in 2019. All those monuments were still up. You know, if you drove down Monument Avenue in Richmond, you would see Robert E. Lee and uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson. And, you know, you would just kind of go down. And and uh, and one little tidbit here is that, you know, in Richmond, when they did that, I mean, this was, you know, turn of the century when they were building many of the, tw- turn of the 20th century, when they were erecting many of these monuments. And to show you just kind of how deep this is in the churches, um, Many of Richmond's most prominent white churches, uh, when they were constructing Monument Avenue with these Confederate monuments, uprooted themselves from their historic buildings in downtown Richmond so that they could relocate uh, near the Confederate monuments and around the Confederate traffic circles, like um, literally facing the the uh, Confederate monuments, you know, there. But, you know, that, that was all there in 2019. Um, if you go to Richmond today, there's nothing but pedestals. Uh, standing where all those Confederate monuments were, and most of the, of the pedestals are spray painted with Black Lives Matter uh, uh, slogans about racial equality. Uh, so, you know, I take that as a sign of progress, but it means that these things are really acute, and it means that this upcoming, these next couple of years up until our next presidential election are going to be some of the most important, I think, in our lifetimes. I certainly agree with that. Uh, but when you mention people change from what they see because of what they see and what they hear, which leads me to deep concern about what else you discover here about media. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, Jesus talked about in, in John eight, uh, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the opposite of that is without the truth, you're captive. Now, when I talk to pastors, they lament, they only get their people for an hour on Sunday or two hours during a week, but Fox and Fox news and, Newsmax gets them 24-7 and all these websites now. So I'm worried, Robbie, how, how people live in almost parallel universes and what they see and hear are totally different from, from, from each other. I often ask pastors, what do your people make of this, that, or the other? And they said, well, they've never heard of that. They don't know that. Uh, it's not a part of their world. So when the media presents two parallel universes, I mean, if people really believe the election was stolen – uh, they're going to protest that <laughs> passionately. So how do we deal? You're, you're, tell us more what you found here about Christians being discipled, you might say, by Fox News and Tucker Carlson. Well, I'll start there with that word disciple. I mean, this is what's so remarkable to me is that, you know, I mean, I grew up and uh, you grew up with, you know, this deep sense of discipleship and this idea that, you know, what you put into your mind shapes who you are, right? This very basic <laughs> sense of kind of virtue, how you develop character, how you develop virtues is, is it's, it's through repeated practices, uh, right? And those shape you over time and create a certain sense of durable character. And I, I feel like that, you know, Christians, particularly white Christians have been fairly flippant about, um, uh, on the one hand, they want to pay um, like strong attention to that. 
and go to Bible study. Go to why do you why do we go to Bible study? Why do we go to church? Right, because it inculcates virtues right into us. Like it's these embodied practices over time make us who we are. Um, but yet, don't think that that um, carefully or um, give much weight to the way that um, a steady diet of uh, you know far right media uh, shapes you. And exactly what you said, you know, if you spend one day a week. Uh, you know, in, in church, uh, and maybe you go to Bible study midweek, but you spend seven days a week and multiple hours a day uh, listening to far right radio or Fox News or um, One American News or Newsmax, um, you know, you shouldn't be surprised, right? That that actually uh, disciples you more than uh, your Christian practices uh, do. And, and in fact, what it ends up doing is warping uh, your Christian practices and you bend your Christian practices to fit right with this stronger thing that you're hearing and i think that's part of the epidemic that we've we've seen but you know we can measure it i mean that's this is the striking thing you can measure it on on public opinion surveys so you know on the question we've been talking about whether uh you know god intended america to be a promised land for white christians uh among the the the, the people who say they most trust kind of far right media outlets like one american news um uh, newsmax uh, uh two thirds of that group uh, agrees with that statement. Fifty-four uh, percent among Fox News. So that so those are actually stronger predictors of believing in white Christian nationalism than even being Republican um, are. And it's just worth noting, like how much they shape all kinds of views around immigrants as a threat, um, uh, around LGBTQ LGBTQ people. Um, or, you know, down the line, um, you know that that you could just measure the independent effect of Fox News and further right uh, television news sources in particular uh, on a whole range of attitudes. Um, and in fact, you can sort Christians, uh, you know, more strongly by their media um, uh, uh, taste than you can by their denominational affiliation. See, that's, that's really scary. Sorting Christians by their, by their media in, intake. As you were just speaking there, I thought about how important Bible study was to, to my church growing up and to our, family, but it's almost Bible study has to become an act of resistance to this whole right-wing media culture. For example, if we study the Good Samaritan parable, the text, this lawyer asked Jesus, I often say this was a Washington lawyer because I recognize that tone of voice. The lawyer says, okay, uh, how do I get to heaven? Well, you love God, your whole heart and soul and mind, your neighbor is yourself. Okay, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? asking like a Washington lawyer. And and then the Good Samaritan parable happens. And, and you know, without going through it all here, what it says is uh, the example that he lifts up is the one who was an other to Judeans who helped those other to him, another other to him. So it's almost saying your neighbor isn't probably in your neighborhood. <laughs> so your neighbor is the one different than you in the Good Samaritan parable. That kind of Bible study taken seriously, go to the text, Counter, countermines should all that media uh, discipling that's going on. So maybe Bible study should be thought of as resistance to uh, that kind of media. You know, I, it's an intriguing idea. I think the the challenge is, of course, right that that we often conduct Bible study in our self confirming confirming circles. You know, and right. So if I'm sitting again in my Southern Baptist church with my fellow white Southern Baptist. Um, and again, to speak theologically, what are the possibilities that the spirit breaks through uh, a worldview in a way that really challenges me, right? It's, it's probably not that high. Um, so like one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, um, and, and, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, like, you know, how did, 
like what, what, what has changed your mind, right. On some of these issues. And uh, you know, the, the, the stri- straightforward thing to say is um, listening to African-American Christians is what changed my mind. You know, even if, even if it's um, not sort of like a mixed group uh, like there, but like reading, you know, even reading, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, James Cone or, um, Cornell West or, um, Kelly Brown Douglas, or, you know, other people who would like read that text differently, um, you know, than, than we're, we're used to doing that would kind of, you know, give us a different lens on it. Um, I think that is absolutely critical. So I just think that the, one of our biggest problems is we're just in these self-confirming circles and, you know, like Christianity is like, um, you know, those like rides that you would go on in the little county fair carnivals where they would have the pony tied up to the pole and, and it would just kind of go round and round in circles. And it had like this worn, uh, you know, trail where it had just gone round and round. So you would get on and you were, you know, you were riding a horse, but it wasn't going anywhere. And you, and the horse, you know, uh, was just kind of wearing this tread in the ground. I feel like particularly white Christianity is a bit like that. You know, um, it's just going round and round and round and not going anywhere. Um, and deep down, you know, I think most of us know that and are just scared to death to admit it. Let's finish with this hope question. You raised hope. Uh, that comes up for you and I and all of us about where is the hope here. I, I was in a, uh, an unexpected conversation. It was a media conversation recently with a reporter who wanted to have a dialogue on moral leadership between an elder leader and a young leader. <laughs> so guess which one I was choose to, to be. So there's this young leader, a Zoom call, right? And he's young and he's white and he's evangelical. And he's one of the, the leaders of the young evangelicals for climate justice. <laughs> so it's a whole new generation. He's a pastor. He lives in Grand Rapids. He went to Calvin College. And he's going on about climate justice and about racial justice and about voting rights. And he's like, I was just beaming and smiling the whole time. And there he is, and he's white, young, white, male, evangelical, who is saying, who would agree with everything that you and I are talking about right now and told me he does. So, so how, how, does a, how might a new generation uh, of believers, uh, particularly white believers who are in or have left the church, they're on the edges or they're back and forth or they've, uh, they're even gone now, but, but, but who, who really might um, uh, identify and want to join with black and brown leaders of our churches to form, you know, uh, even a new American church? And what would that look like? I mean, there's, you, we've talked about you lay out so clearly how a, a third of the country, a minority, uh, is so loud and so powerful on the right and shapes elections with primaries, for example, very powerful. They're a third, but they control more than that. Yet, is there, could there be a new generation uh, coming together that's both multiracial and even interfaith uh, and, and intergenerational, multiracial, intergenerational, and, and uh, uh, multi-faith who really could help take us forward, as you say, instead of backwards? Yeah, you know, I'm, I am hopeful about the, you know, I have uh, two kids, one who's 12, one who's 21. Um, I'm hopeful by what I see in their, you know, friendship networks. Um and the kinds of things that, you know, they care about the, you know, their friendship networks aren't that homogeneous um, and are in a way that mine certainly were um, at their age. And so I think working across these lines and getting out of our bubbles, I think is something I'm, I'm certainly hopeful about uh, in that way. The, the other thing I think I would say um, I'm hopeful about is um, 
so I just finished uh, the manuscript of uh, the next book. And one of the things I did is I went back to Mississippi, you know, my home state of Mississippi, uh, to the Delta, um, uh, you know, one of the more impoverished areas in the country, uh, uh, and uh, and also the site of um, uh, the, the the murder of Emmett Till, the lynching of Emmett Till. Um, and, you know, back before 2000, if you'd gone to Tallahatchie County, um, there was virtually nothing um, on the ground to tell you Emmett Till's story. Like there were no signs, there were no memorials. Um, uh, you could, in fact, drive down the Burn Strider, I mean, the, uh, the, Clarence, uh, the, the Clarence Strider uh, Memorial Highway um, uh, there, uh, and who was the sheriff, who openly raised the sheriff. But there was nothing to, um, uh, uh, to get uh, to really tell the story of Emmett Till. And over the past 20 years, there's been a group of folks, uh, a multiracial group um, uh, that included, for example, like, you know, as there's the co-chairs of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission, a, uh, a son of sharecroppers and a son of, um, you know, huge plantation owner um, you know, heading up a commission uh, to really try to tell the story differently. And so I, I find also these things that are happening, you know, on the ground um, at the local level uh, to be a place where I, I see, you know, congregations getting involved and local people um, getting involved to kind of change the history of things that are happening, really, and, and to change the story that they're telling, not only about America's past, but about America's future. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.